The Story in Your Head, Episode 16, Beyond Leaning In. Welcome to The Story in Your Head. I'm Ron Macklin, and today we're going to talk to Melanie Ho. She is the founder of Strategic Imagination and the author of Beyond Leaning In, Gender Equality and What Organizations Are Up Against. On today's episode, we talk with her about the power of storytelling how to engage in meaningful conversation, and finding space to follow your passions. Welcome to our podcast, The Story in Your Head. I'm Michelle Masago. And I'm Ron Macklin. And today I'm honored to introduce our guest, Melanie Ho, who is the author of Beyond Leaning In, Gender Equality and What Organizations Are Up Against. It's really a unique business book written as a novel. She's also founder of Strategic Imagination, a firm dedicated to drawing on the power of the imaginative arts to drive transformational change. Melanie has also brought her thinking to numerous venues, including guest appearances on NPR, CBS, NBC, in addition to speaking at many of the top universities across the US. She previously served as Vice President and GM of Research at EAB Global, which is an educational advisory technology and services firm headquartered in Washington, DC. Prior to her 12 years at EAB, Melanie taught literature, visual culture, and leadership cultures at UCLA while earning her PhD in English. Her research focused on the relationship of American novels to education and self-help and received UCLA's Distinguished Teacher Award for her innovative approaches to experimental education and teaching with technology. Melanie grew up in California, but currently lives in Washington, D.C. So, Melanie, welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Great. So, our podcast called The Story in Your Head. What does that trigger for you? I love that title because I think we all have so many stories in our heads and some of them are helpful and some of them are not helpful. Some of them we're aware of, some of them we're not aware of. And for me, the pandemic has been a opportunity to really think, I think for, like many of us really think about a lot of that. Yeah. So what do you think the pandemic has changed? Like what has it brought forth that's maybe different? For me and for a lot of folks I talk to, the, the opportunity and the requirement for stillness I think has made me more aware of the story in my head. Before the pandemic, when I think about my life, it was very go, go, go. I was running from meeting to meeting. I was traveling probably at least once a week. And so the story in my head was probably on autopilot. It was something I don't think I had time to question. Yeah. So when you started questioning it, what, what showed up and how did you change that? I, I think of myself as an early adopter of the Great Resignation. I <laughs> <laughs> That's great. left my position, as you mentioned, I was an executive at, a, at an education firm called EAB. I had been there for 12 years. There was a lot I loved about my job. I got a chance to work with colleges and universities around the country, really help university leaders. I loved my team. But I think there had been something missing for a long time. And it was easy for me to not focus on what was missing when I was always on the go. Spending time in the pandemic really thinking about, well, what do I want my life to look like on the other side? And what is, I, early in the pandemic, I got obsessed with attending virtual events. I'm very extroverted. 
and I live alone. And so the <laughs> pandemic really forced me to think through, okay, well, how do I replicate social interaction online? I think I was going to one Airbnb online experience at least once a week. I was doing this app called Quarantine Chat where you get a call from a complete stranger anywhere in the world once a day. I was just doing as many things I could to connect with people. And uh, also going to a lot of virtual events. And I went to one hosted by 1440 a Retreat Center in Northern California called The Coronavirus is Calling. It was all about this question of what is the coronavirus calling you to be and to do differently. And so I started to reflect on just passions I'd had across my entire life for before I entered the corporate world, but for literature and art and how these types of imaginative arts can really help shift people's minds, shift, shift the stories that are inside our heads. So I, I quit my job. <laughs> I decided that I was going to finish my book, Beyond Leaning In. And other than that, I actually didn't really have much of a plan. I was fortunate to have been saving money for a while to be able to give myself that space. And, you know, every single time someone asked me what I was going to be doing when I, after I left my job and I felt this panic of, not the panic about what I was doing, more panic that I couldn't explain it to them, that people would judge me for saying, I'm going to finish my book. But I think that because we were in a pandemic, it just sort of also seemed like anything goes during this period. And it seemed almost less strange to be doing this now than it would have you know, the year before. Thanks, Melanie. You, you talked about mentioning there, connecting with people. How, how do you go about that? What is your strategy for connecting? I tend to believe in serendipity. And I, I, when I think about just the time before the pandemic, what always excited me most were the random conversation with an Uber driver or somebody standing next to you in line in the coffee shop and how you can end up having an extremely meaningful interaction and think about things that you hadn't thought of before. And it might spark something that's the exact sentence that you need to solve what you're thinking about from just this randomness. And so the last, you know, since we went into lockdown, I've been trying to figure out this combination of both connecting with old friends, new friends, people I know in real life, but also just looking for those moments of serendipity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the things you said there, a meaningful conversation, right? Because there's the, there's the conversation you can have, certainly waiting in line for, you know, Starbucks or whatever. What does that mean to you to have that, that meaningful that you talked about that produced so much more for you? I think it's something that shifts your perception in some way. And a shift doesn't have to be dramatic. It could be something that helps clarify your thing. I'll give you an example. So quarantine chat has been one of, one of my phases of the pandemic. I've had many of them was I was uh, daily at least taking one call on this app called, I can't actually remember what it's called, but if you Google quarantine chat at New York Times, they did a good article about this. How it works is when you sign up for the daily quarantine chat, at any moment in the day, your phone could ring through the app. And if you pick it up, it will connect you with someone else in the world. And they give you an icebreaker prompt. It could be something like, what do you hope will happen after the pandemic? Or what are you doing to restore yourself? Or any kind of icebreaker prompt, which actually I'd say most people ignore. And you just have a conversation with a complete stranger somewhere. Some of them are short. They're maybe 15 minutes. You get past the... I mean, I was doing a lot of this really during lockdown, lockdown. And so a lot of it was, well, what's it like for you wherever you are? But I've had conversations there that were an hour and a half, 
two hours. People have suggested books to me. Um, someone suggested The Artist's Way, which I actually hadn't read before and really helped me think through my goals, helped me really focus on on finding my creative spirit. And so when I think meaningful, it's it's sort of unexpected. You know, I don't necessarily expect that a random stranger I'll end up talking to for 90 minutes, but in so many cases we did, and it gave me things to think about that actually shifted of how I went about my day-to-day after that in some kind of way. I'm going to shift a little bit on my question because I can remember working specifically, I grew up working in nuclear power plants and that's part of my first part of my career and power plants in general. And when I was reading what, like what you're doing with your book and the, and the visual arts and all that kind of stuff, I always remember those little, something would happen in a plant and somebody would make up a cartoon about it. And normally before news got to, to the corner office, which would be the top guy, the cartoon was made. Oh, wow. Right. And, and what I remember was, I don't really remember all the details of the situation, but I remember those cartoons. Yeah. Because they, they just stood out to me like, and they were funny. They were relatable. And, and like, it's in that space. Why do you think we, like, I know I did that. I think it was kind of normal for others to do that. Why do you think that's like so memorable for us in that cartoon or the kind of communication that you're doing? I think back to the title of your podcast, people think in stories and people remember stories. And so when I wanted to talk about DEI issues, you know, I thought, well, there's so many books about DEI. There's so many articles and trainings that you can, you can access to learn about equity issues and barriers. And yet we're still facing all these equity gaps in workplaces everywhere. And as I thought about, well, how do you help people make the shifts in mindset they need? That's where the power of stories, whether through drawing or through fiction, really appealed to me. My book, Beyond Leaning In, is told as a novel for that purpose of, you know, I think someone might not actually remember an article they read on the 10 different types of unconscious bias. I hope that when they read my book, they'll remember because they attach to the characters and they'll see the different unconscious biases that the characters witnessed. And comics, to me, are almost doing the same thing, but probably in a more efficient way, that in just a minute, you can look at a comic. I have one that I call the cupcake trap. And on the left side of the comic, I just show a, it's, it's like a drawing of a memo announcing promotions at the company and announcing that Mike and Mara both got promoted to the same position financial analyst. And then you read, it's just a sentence. You read why they're being praised in this promotion memo. Mike is being praised because he brought in several million dollars in revenue through some project and Mara is being praised for her great baking skills. And this kind of thing happens all the time. Below that, I draw a guy who's kind of looking up at the memo and you see this word bubble coming out of his mouth and he just says, what's the big deal? They both got promoted. And so automatically, I kind of wanted to capture this promotion memo. This happens all the time in workplaces. People describe men and women in these gender terms. And we think it's not a big deal. It seems like it's microaggressions are so hard to explain because they're they're micro. But then in the on the right side of the the comic, I show why it is a big deal. And there's just you see two individuals talking to each other. They're a man and a woman because these unconscious biases happen to all of us. And one of them says, "I'm looking for help on a project, and I need a financial analyst. Uh, what do you know about Mike and Mara?" And the other person replies, "Well, I heard Mike is great. I don't know much about Mara. And this isn't about either of them being biased." against Mara because she's a woman or in favor of Mike because he's a guy. It's just that 
they read that memo, that might be the only way they got information about Mike and Mara. And so then below that, I just, I write, people remember Mike for the revenues, I draw a big dollar sign, and Mara for the cupcakes, and I draw a cupcake. And it's something I love to use to discuss intent versus impact and how that plays out in the workplace, because I think someone can listen again to a whole training on intent versus impact, and it seems very abstract, but you just look at the picture and really quickly, you can remember, okay, there are these two staff, they're treated differently, and, and there's that visual of the cupcake. What shows up is when we have those stories, they become our filters that we notice mm-hmm. them through, even though we didn't say, well, today I'm going to use the cupcake filter, right? Right? No, it's just like, well, you, you don't have the story for anything different. Yeah, yeah. And so it, it, it really shows up to where until you can create that story, it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you didn't even know that that original story was in your head. It's just, it's been there since we were three years old and saw, read a children's book where a girl had cupcakes and the boy was fighting dragons. Got it. Yeah, I remember seeing that comic when um, when you posted that and it, it really struck me. At first, I was absolutely horrified. And part of it was, I think I brought cupcakes to a promotion meeting. It's like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, was I the cupcake person? I very well could have been and not known it, right? Because there there was, and I thought back in, in my career and how people described other people, mm-hmm. right? Did they describe them? Oh, and they're also the soccer coach, or they're also, right, all these other things associated with that. And, and you're right, we've got these stories that are just created. How do you go about changing that? I know it's not a simple question, but <laughs> maybe a couple of points on that one. I, mean, I do think the first step is awareness and awareness of how frequent it is and the need to have these constant checks on ourselves. I think that we all kind of go around thinking, well, we're good people, so we're not biased. We're, we're all biased. We're all influenced by these. I like to call them mental autocompletes because I actually think the word unconscious bias can be triggering. People hear it and they think that admitting bias is admitting they're a bad person, even though the whole point of unconscious bias is yeah, that it good. is not conscious. Uh, so I think about it as mental autocomplete. It's just like the silly autocompletes on your phone. The, the programming yep. is what's faulty. And the sooner we can admit that, the sooner we can realize, okay, our programming is faulty. So how do we stop that? Part of it is stopping in its track. Part of it is exposing ourselves to new perspectives so that we have, Ron, to your point earlier, so we have more sources and more stories. I mean, I think there's practical things that can happen in the workplace. My old firm, we came to an agreement at our performance review discussions that if you thought somebody was saying something that was potentially biased, we reviewed the ways in which that could happen right before we went into performance reviews, during the performance reviews conversations. If you thought someone said something that you weren't sure about, you just raised your hand and said perspective check. It wasn't about blaming the person. It wasn't calling them out explicitly. It was kind of like, okay, let's take a deep breath. You know, so much of what happens in business is people are just on this high speed, meeting to meeting, topic to topic, they're not taking time to think. And that's, I think, when these mental autocompletes really have power because we're not stopping. And just something simple like that perspective check, wait, did I mean what I just said? Where were the biases in that? I think that can help a lot. Thanks. One of the mechanics that we, we share with when people who go through our courses is that 
communication is the end result of what you say, not what you mean, but what they make up, mm-hmm. right? They make up something and that's what communication is. And we have three distinctions for how the communication kind of lands with the other person. First one is call it throwing a rock where we actually say something and, and they look at you like, why did you do that to me? Like, why did you throw a rock at me? The next one is they make up a story that goes, ooh, that was pretty good. I don't know if I like it, but it was pretty good. And they're not, they're not mad at you. They're just going like, ooh, I don't know what to do with it, but it's pretty good, right? And then the, the, the last one is you, you float a feather, which means that you say something and the other person doesn't really make up anything at all. Like it just, mm. they just kind of go, huh, Nick, what's next, right? Mm. And so we use those distinctions to kind of notice what the other person's making up. Right? Oh, I like that. So in the second one, are they are they skeptical because they know it's a story? So is it sort of like they're skeptical of the spin or is it more that they it's something they want to think about later? Well, it's a lot of times it's revealing some sort of a mechanic or a mechanism in the world, right, that they didn't know of. And they're going like, oh, that's pretty good. Oh, I can see how I've screwed things up because of that. I don't like that. I don't like that I now know that. But it's pretty good mm-hmm. that I know that because I'm looking back at my past going like, that sucked. Yeah. And you're looking forward going like, but I could use it. And it sucked. And I can use it. And they sit on that edge of whether they're like they, where, defenses kicking in wh- whether they like it or not. Right. Where if it's a rock, they just go like, they look at you and go, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to avoid you in the future. Right. Cause I don't like you. And the other one is like, no, you're pretty good. Whew, it, I'm perturbed. I don't know what to do with it yet. We call that tossing a line. Mm-hmm. And when we're being responsible for what the other person makes up, we always try to like, kind of like to check in. Like, how does that show up for you as to what you're doing and using that for communicating with people? I like to think about the the metaphor of the elephant and the writer. And I can't remember the original source for this, but Chip and Dan Heath in their book Switch talk a lot about it. That we all, if we think about our brains, there's the, there's the writer, the kind of rational thinking brain, and it's sitting on this gigantic elephant. And the elephant is our emotions and our defenses and that even though the writer may know where it wants to go the elephant is a lot bigger than the writer and can easily overpower it and so as i'm kind of talking to folks especially folks who i know might not be on board with what i'm saying or they might rationally agree but there's going to be something that's going to stop them from actually integrating it into their behavior it's like to think about well what's their What's their elephant? What's the thing that's, what's the emotion that's going to keep them from going along with the new way of thinking? How do you approach them with, with to find out what the elephant is? That's, it's, it's hard. I think, you know, depending on my pre-existing relationship with them, the ideal is to be able to just have that on this conversation, right? And to say, this is what's difficult about change. We all have these elephants. What's your elephant? And to get there. And so I, what I love are when I have the opportunity to work with groups that have gotten to that point of trust and openness to just be able to be honest about our elephants. I, I think otherwise it's the game of, you know, 20 leading questions <laughs> until you get there, which can still work, but probably not as well. Yeah, I think we all have elephants of varying sizes Mm -hmm. (laughs) in our lives. And sometimes we see them and sometimes we don't. So that's kind of what I heard that was within there. So the thing that you talked about to kind of 
this is my story, okay? As trust builds, the elephant becomes visible or gets smaller. I'm not sure which. How do you do that? Or what does that mean to get that trust in the relationship such that you can start to, to work with people in those, those moments? Yeah, it's a great question. What are kind of all of the things that go into psychological safety and people feeling like if they're honest, it's, it's not going to come back to them? Because some of that is safety related to the other person, but some of that is to your point about people not even knowing that they have the elephant. It's there's a vulnerability about themselves that's necessary. And so I think on the outside, there are all of the, you know, general practices for building good culture and, and building good team environments where people feel like they can be comfortable talking and, and whatnot. What I hope workplaces can get to, and I think you two have probably thought about this a lot more than I have, is how do you get people to a point where they internally can be vulnerable with themselves before it gets to the point of expecting them to be that with others? Do you think one comes before the other? You have to be vulnerable with yourself before you can be vulnerable with somebody else? Or, or is it going to go either way? Hmm, that's interesting. I guess I kind of do think that, I mean, I think being vulnerable with someone else can help you get to it yourself. Yeah, I can see um, that. But that if you can't admit it to yourself, it would be, I, I don't know if you can admit it to others. Yeah, in that vulnerability, at least what I've seen, at least for myself, it usually stems from not being vulnerable, stems from some fear that I might have, mm -hmm. right? That's sort of preventing that. And I guess they can be elephants, hippos, rhinos. I'm making up all these mm -hmm. stories. All these, these, I, I recently went to Animal Kingdom at Disney. So all those animals are parading through my, <laughs> through my head as I think through the story. But fears, right? So when I think about even yourself making the leap during COVID, from what I can see, a very successful career at EAB to doing something you weren't exactly sure how it was going to turn out. How did you work through that? Uh, a good therapist was helpful part of that. <laughs> <laughs> That's my general recommendation to folks trying to make a big leap is you kind of have to get at the core of your emotions. And yeah, I think there was a, um, there was a part of me that was always afraid to think the leap because I think I didn't think I was worthy. It was sort of a like, well, who am I to think that I can take a big leap and that I can be creative and that I can write a book that, you know, will change how people think. And I, because you know that people do these things, right? I'd certainly read stories across my life about people who had made these kinds of leaps, but they seemed like other people. And I think there was this, who am I to think I could take up that kind of space narrative. And so I had to think a lot about, well, how do I define my self-worth? And has it been too much defined by this external validation? I was in a big company where I got promoted a lot and where I got a lot of praise and things I could put on a resume versus thinking about my self-worth as you know, what do I want to contribute to the world and how do I want to move through it? So if you could think back, what was the main story you had to change for yourself? It's probably a story of what success looks like. And maybe related to success being tied to, I don't know, like planning and certainty and having, I mean, especially being in a corporate environment where you've got like quarterly goals and things, right? And actually, even after I quit and I had committed to myself that I was going to be on a sabbatical and I wasn't going to actually 
I was going to give myself the time and space to figure out what I wanted to do. I still kept thinking, I realized I was thinking in terms of quarters because I said, well, what am I going to get done in the next three months? And it seemed like a big deal to me if I finished something in December instead of January. And I didn't know why it mattered. It's a difference between December and January. I thought, oh, it's because I'm still trying to accomplish things according to quarters. Why? (laughs) (laughs) But I I think I had just been wired to what it means to be a successful, productive person. Yeah. What I I heard was a successful person in a corporation. Mm -hmm. Yep. Those habits. Mm -hmm really stick with us, don't they? Yeah, it's it's so strange. I One of the Airbnb online experiences I did was with a shaman who was in Brazil and she kind of did a meditation and, and this is very woo-woo, so I hope <laughs> your audiences don't mind, but she did a, a meditation and kind of downloaded messages about me and she said, I see a picture of you selling coconut, she was seeing an image of me selling coconuts on a beach but I was still wearing a business suit. And it so perfectly described what I was doing because I was I was drawing comics and I was writing and I was enjoying all of this creativity. And then I was trying to figure out what I was going to get done in 10 weeks instead of 12 weeks. <laughs> That's great. Got it. One of the things I think a lot of our listeners are looking at, because what you did, a lot of people will want to do part of that with the great resignation is now like there's almost to be pressure to resign and go on because you got to join <laughs> yeah. the group. Right. But there's a space where they're going like, there's, there's a story inside me that says I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. And the way I reshi- I shifted that story for myself was cause I did the same thing. And I, I did, I was early enough that I was just weird, not part of the group. And there's a space that I said, in 10 years, if I don't do this, I will regret yeah. my space. So I, w- like I, had to, I had to go try. I had to go do it because I knew I didn't want to be in a space where in the future I look back and go, what's wrong? Why, did you, why didn't you go? Why didn't you go be that? But I think everybody's got to find their own story about how do they create a space to go do what they want to do. I mean, for my father, they came to him and said, would you like to retire? He was 55. You want to retire? And he was going like, I never had that idea. I, I never thought about that, right? And so he goes, well, here's an opportunity. Let me go do it. But there was something that triggered him to go do it. And mm-hmm. he created a new story to go out and start his own business. The question I have is like, like how do we help others see that they can go do it? Mm-hmm. Without, without the external motivation kind of forcing them. Yeah, being shoved out the yeah. door is not really the kind of yeah. story we're looking for. Yeah, I think I think there's just there's two parts to to it. There's kind of knowing that there are other people who have done it and the examples of that and all and everything. And then there's also the just getting in touch with who who do you really want to be? And my feeling is that a lot of people have suppressed that so much, whatever their passion is because they've decided it's at some point early on, they decided it was unrealistic. And I think that not enough folks have the tools for figuring out, okay, what's a passion that I've decided should just be a hobby because I can't make a living doing it versus no, actually you could make a living doing this. Do you want to? And we're just so wired to think certain ways that I I think a lot of folks just can't access that yet that's good thank you 
how did you find how did you find your passion that led you to say okay I've, I've got to try this otherwise I'll regret it in 10 years it, it I didn't create it as a space for like oh someday I'm gonna have a business called this right mm-hmm. it was just a skill that I said I don't have this skill I, I don't have it I need and I need to build the skill so I can live the life to take care of myself my wife create space for my kids to just to live a good life and, and then I did it in a way that Somebody came to me and said, could you teach us how to do that? Mm-hmm. And I was going like, I, I, well, I, just my skill. It's like something I built. I, like, right? And they go, no, you, you, you are very accomplished in this domain, and we'd like to learn from that. And I started looking at it. Like, what would my life be like if I did this full time? What would it be it like is- for me to look back and see the people that I've been able to help live a good life? Now, they, they end up producing their own life but I can create a space for them to step into to create that life. And that just lit me up. I couldn't turn, couldn't turn the light off. That reminds me, this is, this is another woo-woo alert, uh, <laughs> the next thing I'm going to say. <laughs> but um, another shamanic retreat I attended a few years ago, and the person running it talked about how in Native American tradition, you, you think of a lot of different things as medicine, right? Food is a type of medicine. Being in nature is a type of medicine. Being around animals can be a different type of medicine. And that we as human beings are all also medicine to other human beings. And that our purpose is to figure out what our unique way of being medicine is. And that our way of being medicine is something that we can do that's uniquely us that when we do it, other people want us to do more of it and are willing to pay us for it. And that's how you find what your medicine is, which is sounds like exactly what you did. I, I've never held the distinction that what we're doing is medicine, but I get your, I get the story. I'm very much, very powerful. Thank you. Yeah. So what's your medicine? How would you describe it? So back to serendipity and meaningful encounters at the retreat I went to where we had to do this, where we talked about this, that we had to next turn to the person next to us and a complete stranger. And just tell them a little bit about ourselves. And then we had to play back to the other person what we thought their medicine might be. And I actually don't remember much about this encounter, but I looked at my journal from it. And what the person had said to me was, it seems like what you try to do is find creative ways to help people shift their perspective. And at the time, I just wrote it down. But then you know, fast forward to middle of the pandemic, and I had just done my great, great resignation. And I was thinking about using fiction and art to help people shift their perspective. And I thought, oh, right. That's, that's what that complete stranger had said was my medicine. Pretty cool. That is really cool. <laughs> well, as we, we approach the end of our time here and, and look to wrap up, there's so much more we could talk about. Maybe there's a future podcast in our in our togetherness here. Anything else from a passion point of view or something you'd like to mention for the audience here? I mean, my, my main passion we've kind of danced around is this use of the imaginative arts to get people to think differently about DEI topics in particular. I think when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion, our elephants are really big, that we have all kinds of defenses. Up. It's whenever I see anyone, including myself, walk into any kind of diversity, equity, and inclusion training, we're going to feel fear, guilt, shame, defensiveness, sadness, anger, frustration, bitterness. All of us have this range of different and often conflicting emotions. 
And I think until we find ways to have DEI conversations that acknowledge those emotions and give us ways about talking about them, we're not really going to make progress because we end up just dealing with the issues at a very superficial level. So my book, Beyond Leaning In, my comics, some of the free workshops I have around the comics, my my goal is to you know be a part of helping with that, of using stories, fiction, pictures, comics, as a way to help people in, in some small way deal with those emotions. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for being any, you. Any last questions from you, Ron? No, thank you, Michelle. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. I enjoyed it as well. Yeah, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Great to meet you. Good to meet you too. Thank you all for listening today. Please take a moment to subscribe to the story in your head on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Thank you all, and we'll see you next time.